super excited to be back uh, teaching again this morning. Um, if you need a Bible today, uh, well, you're going to need a Bible if you don't have a Bible. So raise your hand and we'll get you a Bible. Um, a couple down here. You can use the Bible on your phone if you'd like to. I'm teaching out of the New King James Version, but whatever version you're comfortable in, uh, you can follow along uh, with. So I have way too many notes for this morning. So let's just pray and jump right into what the Lord uh, has for us today. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing here through our church family, Lord. We thank you for the different opportunities we have to gather, Lord, and to study and to worship, Lord, and just to be in fellowship with one another, Lord. We thank you for this time that you have set aside, and we thank you for this place that you have provided for us to come and to study your word, Lord, and we pray that you would continue to be lifted up, Lord, during this time. We pray that you would be our teacher this morning, that you would give us ears to hear what it is that your spirit would say to your church, uh, and we just ask you to bless your word, Lord, as we know you will. We ask it in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. So I am so excited to be back to our study through the book of Mark. It's been actually four full weeks since we have been in this book. And we're going to be finishing up in chapter 6 today. But because we've kind of been away for this extended period of time, I wanted to just take a moment and catch us up to what we've seen so far. So if you turn to, to Mark chapter 1, this should probably only take about 40 minutes. And No, I wouldn't do that to you people, right? Maybe I would, but I, no, we're not going to do it today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 45 through 56. And just to suffice to say that we're kind of rounding the corner into what is the final year of the ministry of Jesus. We're still up in the Galilee region, kind of there in the north of Israel, where Jesus did most of his ministry. And last time we were together in this book, we looked at what was the only miracle, aside from actually the resurrection of Jesus, the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the gospel accounts, and that was the feeding of the 5,000 men, which we said was really more like 15 to 20,000 when we count all of the women and the children who were probably there. And we saw and we said that this miracle wasn't really at all uh, necessarily just about the feeding at all, right? And it wasn't certainly about the multitude. That's not actually the mountain where they fed them, but it's, it looks like that. A little, no, I'm kidding. Um, but this miracle was all about the 12 disciples, right? It was all about the lessons that Jesus wanted to teach them and the lessons that he wants to teach us. Really about his ability to meet our needs when the needs of those around us when our resources fall so short. And it was an important lesson, if you're anything like me, for those of us who tend to live like we don't already have the greatest resource in the world that's already a part of our life, and that's the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. And so as we move on, we've got the multitude now fed, and we read next in verse 45 of Mark chapter 6, it says what? Immediately, right? There's that favorite word of Mark's again, and this time we're going to see that it's a, a there for an especially good reason. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude 
away. Now, this seems a little bit odd. When we just read last time we were in Mark's account, remember it was this, the, the disciples who first wanted to send the multitudes away, and Jesus said what? He said, let them stay. And now it's all of a sudden Jesus who wants to send these people away, but only after he first sent his own guys away, right? He puts them into this boat to set out all by themselves to meet him in nearby Bethsaida. Now that's actually just across the little inlet there from the Jordan River there at the north of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, for the feeding of the 5,000, they had crossed over to what's known as Bethsaida Julius. It's the Bethsaida that's east of the Jordan, where the Jordan River starts, kind of it comes into the Sea of Galilee there, and that was a more deserted region. Now what Jesus was doing is he's just sending them back across kind of what should have just been a short hop over to the western side of where that river comes in, and that was called Bethsaida in Galilee. And it was actually just a little fishing suburb of their home base there at Capernaum. So he wasn't sending them far, but he was just sending them away, and he was doing it quickly, right? It says he was doing it immediately, or some of your translations might say straight away. And the word there that's used that talks about where he made them get into the boat, it's actually a very strong word. It's actually the word compelled, or he constrained them into this boat. So what Jesus is doing here, he's doing with a sense of urgency. And if you look at John's account, it tells us exactly why. Because John makes it very clear what's happening here. Because what John tells us is that at the end of this day, this multitude realized what Jesus had just done with the loaves and the fishes. And it says that then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who's come into the world. And therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Remember, we're talking about an arena size full of people, right? 15,000 people. These were probably people who were headed down to Jerusalem right around the time of the Passover, possibly. Remember, this is that time of year when national expectations ran high. It was the time when they would remember how they were set free from Egypt. And so the mindset of this multitude is like, hey, this has got to be the guy. And indeed, he was the guy. And so they want to quick make him king. And yet we know that that was not at all how he would take his throne. That was not at all how he was to come into his kingdom, that his kingdom would come through the cross. But the crowd, they were ready now. And the disciples, I'm sure, were right there with him. They're probably thinking, hey, this sounds like a great idea. You know, we just finished this preaching tour. People were getting healed and demons were getting, you know, pushed out. All these miracles were going on. We're out there preaching the kingdom. This would be the perfect time to make him king. And so Jesus says, I got to get these guys out of here and I got to do it fast so I can get rid of this multitude because all of them have a very wrong concept of who I am, right? An unbiblical picture of who Jesus is. What these people wanted 
was the bread king, right? They wanted this king that could provide them with all of these material things. At this time, in the Roman Empire, there was sort of a, a saying that basically said, you know, give them bread and give them the circus. And the idea, it's this whole idea of the masses just being kind of pacified if you just keep supplying them with food and with entertainment. And it's really, I think, so indicative of the way that so many people are still seeking after God today. You know, God becomes for them about all about what they can get kind of from the bread king. And isn't it interesting that that's exactly how the Antichrist will rise to power, isn't it? Right, he's gonna come on the scene, he's gonna solve all of the problems politically. He's gonna feed everybody materially. But of course, Jesus simply is not that kind of a king. That's not what he came to do at all. He came to do so much more. And so he sees this as a very dangerous moment for his men. He knows that his guys are still not mature enough in their understanding of his mission, and he had to get them out of there, really, for their own protection. And so he compels them into this boat. He sends the crowd away. We're not exactly sure how he did that. And yet we know when Jesus needs to get something done, right, like turning over the, the tables of the money changers, he can get it done. And so somehow he gets the, the uh, multitude sent away. And then we read in verse 46 that when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Right? There's a lot going on in Jesus' life and in his ministry at this very point in time. There's a great transition that's coming we've talked about right this tremendous hostility is now going to really start to rise up against him in that final year of his public ministry and of course Jesus knows that it's coming and so he takes this opportunity after this day that he's had right to just get alone with the father to be strengthened in his own spirit through just a time of connecting in prayer with the Father. Now, one of the greatest exhortations in the scripture that we should pray is the fact that Jesus prayed. Amen? Right? <laughs> because it should go without saying that if Jesus needed to pray, then how much more we need to pray. And of course, he did, and of course, we do. And so he's bringing all of these things before the Father. And no doubt, he is praying also for the disciples for their protection over, you know, what almost happened. And what we're going to see next is that's an awfully good thing because these guys are really needing it right about now out there rowing along in their little boat. Look what it says in verse 47. It says, now when evening came, it says the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Now remember, it was late in the afternoon, we said, when Jesus fed the 5,000 or 15,000, right? And then after that was all done, he sent the disciples away. He went up to the mountain to pray. And here it says that evening now had come. Now, in the Jewish reckoning, evening would be kind of that time between sunset and when it's actually too dark to see anything. So that's kind of the time frame where we are at this point, probably just a, a couple hours later. And at this point, it says that the disciples were already out 
in the middle of the lake. Now remember, the Sea of Galilee is about 14 miles long. It's about seven miles wide in this direction that they would have been going. So that means that now they're about three and a half miles from the shore on either the east or the west, and who knows how far out they are from the south, but the point is they are not at all where they were supposed to have been. Look, it was a tiny little trip that they were supposed to have made, and now they're out there in a completely different spot, except, look what we learn next in verse 48. It says, then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now, this may sound a bit familiar because it is. Because here the disciples are caught yet again in another storm. And so today's story is, yes, yet another storm story. And this one is another doozy. Now, Mark simply tells us in his economy with words, he just tells us that the winds were against them. John tells us, that then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. And Matthew tells us that the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So we're talking about a storm that tosses boats, right? Huge waves, right, that pick up boats and throw them around like a kid you know, throws a, a, a ball around. That's what the disciples are in the middle of. And as we said, this was not at all unusual on the Sea of Galilee, not then and even not today. But all of this make the storm very, very similar, at least in terms of severity, to the storm we just saw that they went through at the end of Mark 4. And remember, that was a storm when this very same group of seasoned fishermen, they were panicking because they were convinced that they were about to perish. And we talked, you might remember, about all the different ways that the Lord uses storms in our lives, right? We, you know, any of us who've been walking with the Lord for more than about a week, right, we can testify that God will so often use storms to accomplish his purpose in our life. And in fact, storms are some of his most effective tools to really moving us forward in terms of our growth in him. So much so that they often will come to us just like we see here. Storms will come into our lives precisely as we are right in the middle of the will of God. So it is, we can be in the middle of both the storm and in the middle of God's will. Once again, the disciples are in the middle of the storm, not because of some sort of disobedience in their life, right? That's Jonah, right? That's a different storm and a different sermon for a different day. They're here in the middle of a major storm because they were obedient to exactly what Jesus told them to do, right? He's the one who compelled them to get into the boat and to go over to the other side. And to their credit, they have been desperately trying to their best efforts to do exactly that. The word straining there, where it says that they were straining at rowing, some of your translations might say that they were toiling. And the sense of the word actually has torture involved. Right? Which tells us that the disciples were doing their absolute best to the point of excruciating physical pain 
to be obedient to what Jesus told them to do, and yet still here they are in this boat-tossing storm. And the reason that this is so important to me and, and to all of us is because sometimes I can be prone to think, and I imagine I'm not alone in this, but I can be prone to believe that the will of God is something that should be virtually trouble-free. I mean, there might be little storms, and there might be soft wind, and there might be light rain, right? But in general, you're not going to hit this kind of a storm if you're right in the middle of the will of God, right? Wrong. And the thing is, if I go into the Christian life, or if I'm already in the Christian life, and somehow I've either I've been convinced, maybe by my own mind, or maybe by some bad teaching, if I've already been set up to think that the will of God is always this effortless, easy thing, then I am headed into this with a very bad, very wrong expectation, and I'm being set up for a major, major disappointment and really a crisis of my faith right in the middle the next time a storm comes. And isn't that precisely when you don't want your faith to fail, right? That's the very time when I have to be strong in my faith. That's the time I have to have confidence in God the most. But we get set up by these misconceptions that we have. You guys all know this verse. Jesus said to us as his disciples, he said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Then what does he say? Read it with me. In the world you will have tribulation, he says. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. He says, you're going to get thrown in to some storms. But I am bigger than anything that you're going to get thrown into. You remember, think about the entirety of the book of Acts. Right? It just testifies to the fact that there were these storms right in the will of God as we read about all these men and women who what all they went through for the advancement of the, the gospel in the world that they live in. Right, It was one life-threatening storm after another. It's riots and opposition and imprisonment and persecution and plots and demons and snakes. Right? Why did it have to be snakes? Right? Snakes and literal storms. Right? You read through the New Testament letters. So many of those letters that are written are written to Christians who are where? Right in the middle of these very serious kinds of storms. And they're written to encourage them as they suffered through that time. Peter goes so far as to say, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So who is our prime example in all of this? It's Jesus. Usually when the pastor asks a question, the answer is usually Jesus, right? Who suffered more right in the middle of the will of the Father than anyone else? It's Jesus. A plus, right? And just look, though, look at what it accomplished and it's the very same in, in our lives. Paul said that, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Right? We're here, to, we want to grow and to become more and more like Jesus. Jesus suffered mightily in the Father's will in order to accomplish something mightier still for all of humankind. 
And, and all of this is simply to say that we, we can never come to conclusions about whether we're in God's will or out of it based solely upon whether we're in a storm or not in one. Okay, we can experience the greatest storms right in God's will. And this is a very important point. And I, I'm, I'm hoping maybe this will speak to one or two of us here this morning. We can never disobey the commands of Jesus in order to escape the storm. It's really, it's commendable for the disciples that they had tried so very hard for so very long. We're going to see in just a couple of verses that they probably were out there rowing for nearly nine hours. Right? Rowing and, you know, trying and toiling. And all the while, they're just getting blown further and further right out toward the middle of the lake as those winds came down from the north, right, from the mountains. And maybe some of us can relate to that in our lives this morning, where no matter how hard we seem to toil at the rowing, right, the winds keep blowing and we keep drifting and we're being driven further off course from where we know God told us we're supposed to be headed. And can you imagine the, how great the temptation might have been for the disciples at any point to just say, you know what, let's just give in. Let's just let the storm drive us where it's going to drive us. But they didn't do that. They didn't do it. What they did was they say, you know what? Jesus told us to take this boat to the other side, and whatever happens, that's how he's going to find us. He's going to find us taking this boat to the other side. And so we, we never can give up because our circumstances or, or because the storm gets extraordinarily hard. You know, we keep going. We just keep rowing. And I think that Mark's account of this particular storm, I love it because I think it gives us some, some vital truths to remember to help us maintain perspective in the middle of these kinds of trials, right? Which none of us as Christians escape, right? None of us will escape our boats being tossed, right? Our lives being tossed back and forth by our circumstances, those times when it seems like you're at the mercy of everything that's happening around you. That's just the reality of our lives, and God knows that. And so we're given yet a second similar storm, but it's a very different storm. And it's got some very different circumstances that give us some different new insights. Because as you guys have probably already noticed, because you are an exceptionally smart group of people, but this second storm is very similar to the first storm, except for one major detail, right? In the other storm, we remember that Jesus was right there in the boat with them. But in this storm, they don't know exactly where Jesus is. All they know is he's not there. And they think that they're just out there on their own. So that first storm at the end of Mark 4 that was like storms 101, right? That was lower division prerequisite storms. This is storms 201, right? This is upper division advanced storms. And so often, I think, in our Christian lives, it seems like we barely made it through storms 101 when all of a sudden we didn't choose it, right? But we're now enrolled in storms 201, and we wish that we could just take like the online version. Right? Or the correspondence course, if you're that old, right? We just want, I didn't sign up for this. 
But yet, here's the reality. Of course, storms 201, these are actually the kinds of storms that we as Christians will regularly face in our walk with Jesus. And in fact, this particular storm, this second storm, in many ways is a perfect picture of the current situation of us as God's people. In, in kind of a dispensational or in a prophetic sense or in terms of where we are in God's timeline in human history. Because this storm pictures us as we, the church, are caught in the midst of this stormy world, right? We're blown way off course. We're, we're toiling against the wind. We're tossed around by the waves. And seemingly, sometimes, we are about ready to sink but all the while, Jesus is up there enthroned in glory. And the Bible says that he's watching over us and that he's interceding for us. And these are the first lessons, right? These are the critical lessons we learn first in Storms 201. We need to remember that while we're in a storm, that Jesus never loses sight of us, right? That Jesus is continually watching over us. So go to verse 48 and underline those words there at the beginning or underline it in your friend's Bible next to you where it says, then he saw them. Then he saw them. He sees us straining at rowing. He sees us when the, it says the wind is against us. So Jesus was up there on the mountain praying, but his eyes were always on his 12 disciples. They were never, ever out of his sight. And, and sometimes it's those times where in, we're in the middle of a great storm and we can start to wonder, where is Jesus? And has Jesus lost sight of us? But he doesn't. I love what Jesus said in John 10. He said that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and my Father are one. They are one in holding on to what is theirs, which is you and it's me. And you cannot have a more secure situation than that. Psalm 73, right? The psalmist Asaph, he declares this. He declares to God, nevertheless, I am continually with you. He says, you hold me by my right hand. So how close is God? He's just as close as if he were holding on to your hand. And that's the truth of our lives, no matter what right now. Jesus is not only there at an arm's length, holding us safely, watching over us. But it says here in our text, he's also praying for us, right? He's continually watching over us and he's constantly praying for us. And it's in the midst of these greatest storms in our lives that we need to remember this. You know, the, the Bible declares that Jesus never ceases to pray for us. And though I know that it may not specifically say so in our text today, I have no doubt that he was praying for these disciples as he was up there on that mountain because that's what Jesus does. Paul said this in Romans 8. He said that Jesus is now even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. 
right now, day and night, seated there in heaven on the throne next to the Father, Jesus is constantly interceding on our behalf. And his prayers are so powerful. And that's exactly what prompts Paul to declare then in the very next verse of that wonderful chapter, Romans chapter 8. Right? So it's in the context of these prayers that he says Jesus is praying for us. Then we have one of what is one of the most powerful passages, I believe, in all of the New Testament. Paul asks this rhetorical question. As a result of all these prayers, he then says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what his prayers ensure for us. And if that wasn't enough, Paul says later to the Hebrews, he says, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I, I don't think that we have any idea of the sheer magnitude or the influence of Jesus' prayers day and night on our behalf to our individual lives. And I don't know that there's anything that calms my heart much more in the middle of one of these life-tossing trials than to know that I'm being prayed for. Certainly, I'm always praying for myself, right? And, and I, I know that God hears my prayers, and I know that those prayers make a difference. I'm so thankful that other people are praying for me, right? Of course, that's priceless. It's such a gift that we give to one another and a tremendous source of encouragement. But by far, the most important thing to realize is that even right now, in this very individual moment in time, that Jesus Christ himself is interceding for you. And he's interceding for me. And he knows all of these situations in our lives. He's praying for strength. He's praying for comfort. He's praying for our faith to increase. Right? And, and not only is he constantly aware of everything that's happening, but he's continually praying for us in those things. I, I can never think about this idea of Jesus as an intercessor for me and for you, except that it brings such a great blessing to my heart. And even when I may have heard it a million times in my Christian life, it blesses me every time I'm reminded. So once again, look at the beginning of verse 48. It says, he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. And then it says, now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. So Jesus not only had his watchful eyes upon them, not only was he interceding in prayer for them, but when the time was right, he came to them in the midst of the storm, right? Constantly watching over us, constantly praying for us, and eventually Jesus will come to us. 
Now, the idea here at the end of the verse where it says that he would have passed them by, that sounds a little bit funny. It almost sounds like kind of Jesus was like in the fast lane, you know, on, the, on those people movers at the airport. Like he was in the fast lane and he was just going to stroll right on by him. But, but the picture of the language is very specific and it's more so that he intended to pass beside them. And it's the very same idea that we read about in Exodus 33. Remember where Moses asked if he could see the Lord. And God put Moses in the cleft of the rock. It says, then he said, I will make my goodness pass before you. God says, you can watch and you can get a glimpse of my glory as I pass by you. Right? And, and that's the very same idea here. It's this idea of a, a theophany, right? An, an Old Testament appearance of God. The desire of Jesus was to come alongside of them and to pass by them in that very same sense, to become visible to them so that they could see him and that it would then strengthen them in their time of distress. And, and it's during those storm seasons in our lives Right? Jesus comes to us, he draws near to us in this supernatural way, and he passes beside us in the most glorious ways. And it's during those times he allows us to get just a fresh new glimpse of his greatness and his glory. And those are the things that sustain us through these most difficult seasons. Right? So Jesus will not only come to us, but he'll pass beside us. And, and so often, maybe you've had this experience, it's the things that we fear the most, right? It's that, it's that raging sea and it's those tossing waves, but those are exactly the things that Jesus will use to accomplish this in our lives. They're exactly the things that he will use as a bridge to come to us. Notice that these raging waves, they just become his servants. Jesus basically uses these things as stepping stones, right, to come to the disciples at the time when they needed him the most. And so often, again, it, in our lives, it's those most difficult times. It's those life-tossing times like uh, an illness or maybe it's the loss of loved ones or it's a trial that we're going through with one of our children or it's some sort of a, a financial hardships but it's those times that Jesus uses to step in, if you will, to our lives so that he can pass beside us so that we can see his glory more fully. But notice this before we move on from this verse. It says that Jesus came when? About the fourth watch of the night. Now, in Roman reckoning, as they broke up the watches of the night, this would have been anywhere between about 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., the last watch of the night. So it kind of begs the question, right? Do the math with me, smart people. If Jesus first saw them as evening came, right? If it was that time when the, the sun set before it was too dark to see. And let, in the spring, let's, let's be generous and say that this might have been as late as 8 or 8.30, so now it's easily seven or eight hours after that point, and we know that the disciples had already been struggling for perhaps a couple of hours before it says that he saw them. 
So why in the world, we have to wonder, why did Jesus wait so long to come to them and to strengthen them? Well, the answer is that because Storms 201 is an upper division course with a whole lot of practical lab hours required. It's just a fact, right? Maybe you guys have noticed that God's timing and your timing are pretty different most of the time. My timing, right, for the storms in my life is right about that time I just see the clouds start to form. I say, okay, Lord, that's enough, right? Let's just pretend that I went through the storm. Right? Why don't you just tell me what it was I was supposed to learn from this and let's just wrap this whole storm thing up and move on to the next wonderful thing. Right? I just like things to end very, very quickly like that in my life. But again, the truth is, of course, that God always knows just how much storm I need in order for him to accomplish what he needs to do in my life. And, and I need to know and I need to trust that he will always show up and bring that storm to an end at the right time, but it won't be a moment before that time because here's the difference. He has a different perspective, right? He has a better perspective. He has a fuller perspective on the storm than I do, right? We're right in the middle of the storm down there on the lake, and where's he? He's watching from the mountaintop. He has a heavenly perspective, and he has this whole laundry list of things he wants to accomplish in me and in you as a result of the storm. My list is longer, I'm sure. You know, you guys are, are very close to being just what he wants. But at the top of that list, right at the top of that list of things he's trying to accomplish is something that just takes time. And it's usually to bring us to that point where we just come to the end of ourselves. The first item on the list is to bring us to that place where we realize that we have no way out of this thing on our own. Where we realize that all of the rowing that we're doing isn't helping at all. And I know I've mentioned this passage before, but you think about the life of the Apostle Paul, right? Unquestionably one of the heroes of the faith one of the strongest people that we could ever imagine serving the Lord. And you just read through the book of Acts and you just say, wow, this guy is amazing, right? His faith is amazing. And yet there was a time in the Apostle Paul's ministry and in his life when it looked, at least to him, it looked like God was too late for him. It looked like he wasn't going to survive that circumstance and that storm that he was in. And we remember he tells the church there at Corinth about it when he writes to them in 2 Corinthians 1. He tells them about that time in his life. And then he tells them what he learned from it at the point that he could look back on it in the rearview mirror. And he said this, remember he said that we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. He says, yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves. He says, hey, this was a life-tossing storm that I was involved in, guys, and I was convinced I was not going to survive this thing. Convinced that this was going to be the storm that takes me out, which at this point 
would have been better than staying alive. That's the point where Paul was. He despaired even of his very life. That's what he was convinced of. But here's what he says he learned about it. As he continues right on the next verse, he says that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. And so we need to trust in the Lord to bring that storm to an end, but to do it just at the right time and not before, trusting that he's able to deliver us from the storm just as he has already delivered us from so much more. He's already delivered us from an eternity separated from him. He's already delivered us from the penalty of death, right? He will still deliver us from this present trial, but it may take some time. Think about the disciples. They had been out on this sea, we said, for at least nine full hours. And that was after a full day the day before, which had come immediately after, weeks before, remember, out on their preaching, teaching tour in the Galilee as they were sharing the gospel and they were being used by God to minister to people. Remember when we started this whole thing, they were on their way with Jesus for a time of rest. And the multitude had followed them over to that retreat spot. So these guys had already kind of hit this exhausted physical condition. You know, they are absolutely miserable, stretched before they even got into the boat. And now by this time, now they're soaking wet. They're cold. They probably have bleeding blisters on their hands. And Jesus waits until precisely that point. He waits until their situation was so desperate that they had to know that they couldn't do anything to help themselves. And I also think, just quickly, that, that the delay in Jesus coming to them and rescuing them out of the storm just completes that powerful prophetic picture we talked about earlier. Because it speaks exactly to where we are as the church today here in this storm. Right, Jesus is there in heaven, he's watching, he's interceding until the time is right to come and to rescue us out of this storm of this present world. Now we're ready right about now, right? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, you're saying, right? Right before the end of this sermon would be fine, right? But we know that there's more that needs to be done before that time comes. Right, but there's an assurance that, again, kind of as the, as the, you know, those earliest streaks of dawn start to be seen across that dark horizon of the sky, that's the time when Jesus is going to be preparing to just usher in this new day of righteousness and peace. That's when he comes, and it's a beautiful picture prophetically that I really think should encourage us patiently and expectantly as we wait. So here comes Jesus, right? In the storm, he's revealing himself to his disciples as an encouragement to their faith. But look what it says happens next. We're in verse 49. It says that when they saw him walking on the scene, see, see pardon me, they supposed it was a ghost, right? A phantasma, right? A water phantom is what it referred to. And it says that they cried out, or literally they were shrieking, it says in verse 50 that they all saw him, right? Not just a couple of them hallucinating, but they all saw him and were troubled. 
So the idea here is that these guys were totally terrified. And really, who wouldn't be? Right? Let's be honest. You're out there, you're exhausted, you're probably delirious, you're rowing for nine hours in a storm, tossed back and forth by the waves, it's pitch black, there's just enough light now starting to come, and suddenly you see this strange figure moving effortlessly across the waters, and so yeah, they are screaming out in terror. It says in the rest of verse 50, but immediately he talked with them, and he said to them, be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. So with a word, he calms their fears. Now, I'm sorry, but be of good cheer in this translation isn't actually the best rendering of the Greek, right? Because understand, when you're in a storm, right, and your hands are bleeding and your back is gone and you are being tortured, Jesus doesn't show up and say, cheer up, right? <laughs> what he says literally is, take courage. That's literally what it says here, and that's literally what he says to us in those hardest days. And it's in the present tense imperative, which is to say that what he's saying is, be taking courage. Be courageous right now. Why? Because look what Jesus ties to that. Look what he says right after it. What does he say? It is I. You know what that is? I am. I am that I am. Right? It's what Moses heard from the burning bush. It's Jesus saying, take courage because I am Jehovah. I am the true and living God. I'm the one that walks on the waves. And then he adds to that, do not be afraid. And again, it's a command. You must stop being afraid. And I think that all of this is super, I think it tells us something that's very interesting and I think it's important to us because what it tells us is that our fear can be commanded. What it tells us is that courage can be spoken directly into a heart that's fearful. Not by a human being, right? Not by a, a counselor, not by a psychiatrist, but it tells us that Jesus Christ is able to speak to our fears and to our phobias and our struggles, even in the midst of our terror. He's able to say, take courage. He's able to say, get a hold of this because of who I am. Because of who I am, you must stop being fearful. And when he speaks that directly and he speaks it to your heart, it's like medicine, isn't it? And it's effective. And we can hear this from a hundred different people and still make no progress, even though what they're telling us is the truth of the story, right? But when we hear it from him, when the Holy Spirit speaks that to us, when the I am speaks it to us, it does something inside of us. And it tells us that he can do things in a human heart and in a human mind that we have no ability to do in and of ourselves. 
But when the command is attached to who he is, even as he's coming to us in the midst of our terror, but that command now has power and it can make that real in our hearts as we simply receive it. Right? He'll come and he'll pass beside us and he will come to encourage us in himself. You think about the word encourage, what does it mean? It just means to put courage around something, to encourage something, like to envelop it in courage. And it's really remarkable when we consider just the sheer power of his word as it's coupled with his person and his presence again as he passes there beside us. Now, it's at this point in the story we remember that Peter calls out to Jesus and then he steps out and walks on the water to get to Jesus and then he sinks into the water because he took his eyes off of Jesus, right? Now, none of that is recorded here in Mark's account. You gotta go to Matthew to find out the details. And it's interesting, but some suspect that because Peter, we know, was the source for most of the eyewitness accounts that Mark records, that Peter probably purposefully left that part of the story out. Now, he either did it because he didn't want to be exalted down through the ages because of the fact that he had walked on water, or possibly he did it because right, he didn't want to be humbled because he sank. Right? Peter didn't like to tell that part of the story. Now, whatever it was, I don't know about you, but again, it's hard for me to be critical of poor Peter because I've got dry feet, right? Because I'd have been one of the guys who stayed right there safely in the boat right next to all you guys, right? You know where we'd have been. Because remember, Peter steps out of the boat to go to Jesus, and at that time, the storm was still raging and the wind was still blowing and the waves are still tossing. And that's the point at which Peter steps out in faith anyway. Right now, again, Peter's story is a different story for a different day. Today we have Jesus coming to these men, walking on the waves, calming their fears, commanding their courage. And it was as they received that word from him, and as they received him, it says in verse 51 that then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. The moment Jesus stepped into the boat, immediately as they received him into their circumstance, Immediately as they allowed him to, to penetrate their fear, the storm ceased and the winds calmed and the waves stopped. And then look at the rest of verse 51. It says, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Well, I guess so, right? And then Mark gives us, only Mark gives us some insight next about that reaction. And again, probably from Peter's perspective, Mark now tells us why their minds marveled, why, why they were amazed beyond measure. Look at what it says in verse 52. All this happened, he says, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Now, this is interesting to me and so super instructive. Mark directly ties the great fear they had in the storm 
back to the fact that they had missed the lesson of the loaves in the feeding of the multitude the day before because one of the things that it should have done was point them to his true identity. And yet they missed it because what they didn't consider on the hillside just a day earlier is what we said when we looked at it, that it must have been nothing less than Jehovah himself in an act of creation as those loaves and fishes were multiplied in his hands. And that if Jesus could create food to feed thousands, then surely he was capable of protecting them through this storm wherever he was. But here's the instructive part, I think, for us. Look at the reason Mark gives us. Again, the spirit inspiring this. The real reason Mark tells us they missed the meaning and the significance of the miracle was why? Was why? Look at the end of the verse. Because their heart was hardened. And the, the, the literal sense of the tense of that phrase, it's in the passive tense. It says they had come to have hardened hearts. And it's an important distinction because what it tells us is that they didn't necessarily do this to themselves. The religious leaders hardened their own hearts against Jesus, right? But here, the disciples, this was something that just sort of had come to happen to them, and it happened to all of them. And the question we need to answer as it relates to us is why did that happen? Right? What, what was it that caused it? Was it simply their familiarity with Jesus? Was it because they'd spent the whole day earlier in the midst of this miracle just handling these ordinary things, right? It was hours and hours of baskets and baskets of bread and fish, right? Were they just too focused on the practical that they missed out on the supernatural? Or, or had they, at this point, again, now they've been two and a half years in, with Jesus in this ministry, had they just seen so many miracles that they'd come to just expect them? So much so that they didn't perceive this incredible miracle that was taking place in the bread, right? And, and understand that the same God that can feed 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish is also the same God that can walk on water in the midst of the storm. It has to be the same, right? He was miraculous in this situation. He's going to be equally miraculous in this other one. And I, and I think that you and I sometimes, or maybe I'm just preaching to myself, and if I am, then just forgive me, but I think we can sometimes take God's miraculous involvement in every detail of our lives and we take it completely for granted. When it's happening in the ordinary things that we handle on an everyday basis. You know, it says in the Bible that his mercies never cease, that they are new every morning. And how miraculous is that all by itself? Right? It says in the Psalms that he daily loads us with benefits. Right? It's his hand directly that does that. He's the one that gives us our daily bread. It says in Daniel that he's the God who holds our breath in his hand and owns all of our ways. In Isaiah, it says, he says, I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And these are nothing, nothing less than miraculous things, right? Every single one of them that we are living, every one of us, each and every day with. And sometimes I think in, in, the, 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 in the pace 
that we have in our lives, right? Again, just speaking for myself, but I can completely take for granted the miraculous work that he's doing, just holding me up above the storm day after day after day. Because there's just this rhythm to it, and there's a pace to it, and there's this regularity with which he just continues to do it, right? Miraculously, supernaturally, but in such a natural way, day in and day out, that we just take it for granted. And so what happens? Our hearts sort of become hardened. So what does it take? Sometimes it takes a storm, right? It takes a Storms 201 kind of a storm to remind me of who he is and what he is really doing day in and day out in my life, right? Just to give me a chance to pause and simply like the disciples, to be amazed beyond measure and to marvel. To marvel simply that I'm even in this intimate relationship that I'm in with the creator of the universe. Right, so Jesus will use these storms to reveal himself afresh to each one of us. Here's what Matthew tells us, that at this point, as these men sat there in the boat, it says that those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And this is the first time that the disciples had used that phrase. And it was this storm coupled with that bread which had revealed that truth to them. Right, as he's watching over them here and then coming down to them and now being with them and the way that he calmed that storm, it just drove these truths even more deeply into their lives and their hearts and they recognized him as the Messiah, but more importantly, they recognized that he was the Son of God, that he was the great I am so much more than the bread king. And again, for every one of us, the same thing. These storms, we need to embrace them because they have such a wonderful purpose in our lives. As he puts us in these situations, in these circumstances that we wouldn't put ourselves in, amen? <laughs> but he compels us into them, these absolutely impossible things where the storm is just throwing us wherever it wants to, and then he interjects himself into our life through that storm, right? He steps into our life right on the waves, and then we experience the faithfulness and his power and his love and his wisdom. And then what happens is we come to understand those things that they triumph even in the most difficult moments of our lives and we come to know that he is stronger than any storm. Now, you can try to learn that in a book or you can hear it in a sermon, right? Even a good sermon on a Sunday morning if you could find one, but we can hear it and what happens when we hear it? Well, it goes about one inch deep into our lives, doesn't it? But he puts us, he, he constrains us Every so often when he knows we need it, he forces us to get back in that boat and he sends us out right into a storm so that we can experience him in this new powerful way. Think about this and be honest, right? Think about what a shallow, poor, pathetic depth of relationship that you would have with God personally, right? Or what a, a shallow understanding 
that you would have with God experientially apart from the trials and the storms that he has brought you through in your life. Apart from just experiencing the way he works and what he brings in the middle of those times. These times are all, they're never to destroy us. They're always to deepen us as Christians and to deepen us in our understanding because it changes the way that we see him. And it changes the way that we look at what he does. Look what happens in our final verses. Don't panic. We're going to go through them super fast. Though your reservation will be held, I promise you, right? So Jesus is in the boat. The storm has stopped. The winds are calm. John tells us, actually, that immediately as Jesus entered the boat, that they arrived instantaneously at their destination. It says in verse 53 that when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. So here they land, back on the land, I believe exactly where it was that Jesus had always planned that they would land on the land, right? They, they started up there in Bethesda East, in kind of that, that northeast corner of the sea. They had planned to pick up Jesus just across the mouth of the Jordan at Bethsaida West, so they could cross over to the other side to Gennesaret. They had a little detour out to the middle of the lake. But Gennesaret was this small town located kind of on the northwestern shore of the sea. And as they arrive, Mark now shows us a very familiar scene that we've repeatedly seen. It says in verses 54 through 56, it says that when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and, he, and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment and as many as touched him were made well. Right, we've seen this scene play out almost everywhere where Jesus went with the disciples. But I have to wonder if the disciples watched it this time with a new sense of wonder. Right? This time as they're watching with their hearts now softened with this fresh, new, more heavenly perspective. Right? Because what these storms do in our lives is they, they enable us to see him in a powerful new way. But here's, what, here's something that I think is really cool. This particular area right there around Gennesaret, it was an area that was known to have several medicinal mineral springs. So it had be, kind of become sort of a, a, a resort, if you will, for the sick as people just flocked there from all over, just hoping for healing, just looking for relief from their illnesses. And relief had just arrived, hadn't it? And so the disciples, with this new, fresh perspective on who Jesus was, they're seeing exactly what they've seen before, but it's like now they're seeing it on steroids. Right now they're just seeing it amplified right before their eyes. So I believe that Gennesaret was always part of the lesson. Here's God incarnate walking about in the midst of his people. He's relieving their suffering. He's curing their diseases. His deity was revealed in everything he did for anyone who simply had eyes to see it. Now, we're going to see 
that even all of this, as we get into our text next time, we're going to see that all of it failed to convince the religious leaders with their hardened hearts, right? Convince them that their long-awaited-for Messiah had just arrived to deliver them. Now, as we finish, I want to finish with just one final thought about the storm. Look back just to the beginning of verse 53. It says, when they had crossed over. And then compare it with what Jesus told them right back where we started in verse 45. What was it? That they should go before him to the other side. Right? Jesus had said that they would cross over, and they did cross over. Which is simply to remind us that God's word is always going to have the final say in any storm in our lives. And I don't care if you've heard this a hundred times already in your Christian life or if you're hearing it right now for the first time, but this is a truth that should always impact us deeply. Right When Jesus first tells the disciples to go over to the other side, right when he said it, it meant that they were going to do it. They were going to get to the other side. His word had the final say in this circumstance. The storm didn't have the final say. Even the disciples didn't have the final say. His word had the final say. And when God commands us to do something, he stands behind that and he makes sure that his command has the final say. God's word, you guys, is, is not just words on a page. And when a person understands that God stands behind every promise that he makes in his Bible to his people, when we understand that, then we should start to look at the word of God in a different way. And when you've experienced that truth in your own life, because of these storms, right, storms 201, that he's brought into your life, then you truly understand that God honors those words. It's not just a bunch of things that he sort of threw out there and then turned us loose kind of on our own. Right? He stands behind every one of those things. And trust me, God will not allow any storm that comes into your life, he won't allow that storm to make him a liar. It won't happen. It won't happen in your life. It won't happen in my life. Even if it's another hundred years before he comes again and every one of us is sitting there on our deathbed in a hospital and we're just ready to be received up there into glory at our next breath our witness then at that point in our life right all the way right there at the end of our life our witness will be that jesus has been faithful to each and every promise in our lives our witness is going to be that his word has had the final say through every storm, and that indeed, he is the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you for this record that uh, you've provided to us through Mark, Lord, of just this remarkable life of your Son, Father. And we thank you for the great encouragement that it brings, Lord. We thank you for the courage that it infuses into each one of our lives, Lord, as we understand more about who you are and about what it is that you want to do in our lives, Lord, and during these storms that you allow. And so, Father, I pray that you would help to make these truths 
real to us, Lord. Write them on the, the hardened tablets, Lord, of our hearts. And uh, Father, I pray that we would simply worship you as we consider them. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand up and let's really worship the Lord because he is worthy to be worshipped. Amen.